It's a live open mic Friday. That's right. It's the day after July the 4th, July the 5th in the year of our Lord 2019. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and we're live in the studio. I walked into Synod headquarters, and some of the hallways were even dark. Very few people are here today because they love to have a two-day holiday after July 4th. But it's an open mic Friday, so you can phone me if you have any question on your mind. The numbers are 821-0850 in St. Louis. And elsewhere, a long distance, one 800 730-2727. Now, we do have email that I would like to get to. So that's something that we'll be looking forward to in taking a look at that. But first of all, it looks like we've got someone on the line. And I believe, is this Michael? Hello, Michael. Hi, how you doing? Excellent. Yeah, let me turn my radio off. Oh, God. Hello? Yes. Okay, good. You didn't turn uh, me off. You turned your radio off. Good. Listen, you were talking about something, and, and you, I don't think you were really quite right. It was uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, and I'll tell you why, you why I don't agree with you, because you didn't read it out of the King James Version. You read it out of a, out of a Catholic-sounding Bible. No, out it, of the ESV. Well, what it says is, is that the Messiah shall be, on Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, it says, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And and that's the identical thing when Caiaphas said, it's better for one man to die than for a nation to perish. That's what it's referring to, what Caiaphas said in, in John chapter 11, verse 50. Whoa. What was the impression I gave? I got the impression that you were just simply saying it was just simply predicting that the Messiah would be crucified or killed you know but it, but i but it's really the primary prediction was caiaphas saying that and then of course the secondary uh prediction was that jesus christ was crucified in that particular context yes now i would not have a disagreement with that i don't know daniel chapter 9 as well as i might but uh, i'm taking a look at it right here and i don't really have that much of a problem with what you're saying there especially when you're tying it into what caiaphas said oh okay well thanks okay thank you so much for calling mike all right bye bye yes we're going to go to an email right now and this is kind of a follow-up pastor baker you mentioned that just because Baptists don't believe in infant baptism doesn't mean they're not saved. So my question that arose from that comment is this. How far can people go in doctrinal differences where it would affect their salvation? That's really an excellent question. But it's one that is really difficult to understand because on Judgment Day, God isn't going to be looking just at the head, what people believe. He's going to be looking at the heart, what they believe. So let's say you have somebody 
who really believed Jesus Christ died on the cross. My sins were forgiven there. Uh, They attend church regularly, and they're active in the church, but they don't believe in creationism. They believe in evolution. Now, that would be false teaching. And if they were a member of my congregation, I would not permit them to teach Sunday school. But would I say to them that therefore they're going to hell? No, not necessarily. But if they're into evolution to the point where God isn't even needed to create the world and that there is no God, well, then that could be a problem from God's point of view. We have a distinction. Remember, theology is the art of making distinctions between fundamental and non-fundamental doctrines. If you had to be correct on every non-fundamental doctrine, then you would have to say and conclude that children who are going through youth catechism all would be going to hell because they are quite unaware of the non-fundamental doctrines they believe in that are wrong in their mind. That's the reason they go to youth confirmation. They learn much more in confirmation than they would staying at home, not attending Sunday school, church, etc. And so that's really an important point I would want to make is that if you're going to say that a person has to have perfect faith Well, in my opinion, only one person had perfect faith, and that was Jesus Christ. And where the line occurs between a person being a believer and an unbeliever, I do not have the capability of making that distinction. Remember, Jesus looked at Peter one time and said, get thee behind me, Satan, because Peter had the view that Jesus needed to be protected when he went to Jerusalem rather than dying on the cross. Now, to me, that sounds like a real mischaricature of the Old Testament verses. And look at those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, all confused about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and then hearing about the resurrection. How did Jesus bring them around? He spoke to them from Genesis to Malachi of the Old Testament books, how Jesus appears everywhere, plus gives the reason for the necessity of the crucifixion. And remember, when he was talking to them, their hearts began to burn within them. And that meant that they were getting joyous, finally beginning to understand the true purpose of the crucifixion and the resurrection. I would not say that those two disciples were going to hell before they met Jesus, even though they were quite ignorant of the meaning of what Jesus had done. You you even get that in some of the miracles of Jesus. He feeds 5,000 people, well, 5,000 men plus the women and children. And then they come running after him, attempting to make him into a bread king. 
to overthrow the Romans, restore Israel to its former grandeur, and this sort of thing. And even Jesus says, you saw the miracle, but you missed the sign. And what he's saying is the purpose of the miracle was not to point to Jesus as a tremendous secular ruler who will give you the food and the clothing and the housing you need, but rather the spiritual leader who has come to bring spiritual good news. And that's really important to understand. I'm not sure that those 5,000 people all would have been going to hell had they died that day. Because even those who knew of Jesus coming, who would deny that Mother Mary was a believer? That became clear when the angel Gabriel came to her and said, yep, you're going to have a baby. Well, how can I? I have not known a man. And the angel says, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And Mary assents to that. Now, that's the same Mary who at the cross was in total dismay, not understanding why her son was being crucified. And so that's kind of important to remember that that's the reason we encourage people to come to church. Uh, The way I like putting it is this. When you come to church, what you believe in your heart goes up to your head because it's your head that often gets wrong understandings of God. I mean, how many Lutherans still believe that when something bad happens to them, that's a consequence of some sin that they have done. We often sound like that widow where Elijah raised her son from the dead. She said, why did you come? My son has died. As though she was forgetting that the flour she had and the oil she had, that was not going out of supply. And yet... She said, have you come to remind me of my sin by the death of my son? We we found that definitely after some terrible weather phenomena, like a tsunami, hit certain areas of the world. People were wondering, what did I do to deserve this? And they saw it as a direct punishment from God for something they had done wrong. But Lutherans came in and other Christians helped rebuild their houses, helped with um, food, etc. In fact, I just saw a, a YouTube video about a terrible train disaster in one of the countries on which were many people, including the president and his wife of the Lutheran church in that area, And they died because of the tsunami. Now, are we going to say that God did that because he didn't really appreciate that president? Of course not. Or you'd have to say that God permitted the apostles to be martyred because he thought they weren't doing a good job. Now, I've said this a number of times before, but... If you go to a courtroom, a jury decides innocence or guilt. A judge decides the sentence. 
as Christians, we can be jurors, but we cannot be judges. In other words, in a congregation, we may bring someone up on charges of excommunication because of unrepentant sin. This would be, for example, somebody saying, yeah, I know the church thinks it's a sin. I do not think it is a sin, and I'm not going to be sorry for it. That shows us the Holy Spirit is no longer moving this person. And to make him aware of his fallen nature, we would go through with excommunication. That'd be a very important thing to do. That's actually a very loving act to do. Uh, For example, uh, many of you know now that I had uh, heart surgery. Uh, They call it a procedure. I call it surgery because... Uh, you're numbed, and I had an aortic valve replaced. And they did it in such a way that they didn't have to do it by cutting me down the middle and I'd be off for three months. They did it through the leg. Now, this is amazing. And it was an overnight stay at the hospital. Now... That was really amazing. I was only in there one night, and yet the bill for the hospital alone was $12,000. Can you imagine that? That's why I really appreciate the Concordia plans, and uh, uh, we're on Medicare also. So we had to pay very little of that, and that's really some good health plans. You, You need to have a good health plan I just heard someone who had some neck surgery, and um, it was her cousin telling me this. The bill was $75,000. And then when you wonder, how can they charge so much? Well, when I was in the hospital, I was woken up almost every 15 minutes, and they were doing blood tests because they had to make sure that my heart had received the new valve. Because if it hadn't, wow. There would have to be more things done. So there was a lot of people coming in. I was uh, having various tests. Uh, One of them, I forget the name of it, but it's a metal thing that they move over your chest for about a half an hour taking video. And, And so I praise the Lord that he has given doctors and medicine new techniques where downtime is not three months but overnight. I mean, that's just amazing. And that also happens within the spiritual field. That's why KFUO exists. If you want to get right with God, and that's a topic coming up in two weeks. We call it the Good Samaritan. The young man believes he gets right with God by obeying God's law. Well, there's going to be a lot of downtime if you try and get to heaven by obeying the law of God. The downtime will be in eternity outside of heaven. And so it's going to be really interesting preaching on that because we're going to give uh, insight into Christianity that is found in no other religion. Now, when I came in today, I know a lot of people are on vacation, so we're probably not going to get many calls, I said, to the call receiver, but if we still got a few minutes, if you'd like to give me a ring, uh, first of all, in St. Louis, it's 821-0850, 
and toll free uh, anywhere in North America, 1 800 2727. Maybe you have a question. We've ended the first half of the church year, and we're now entering the second half. What's the difference? The first half of the church year, beginning with Advent, really concentrates on Jesus and his life, his miracles, all the way up to the time of Holy Week with his crucifixion and his resurrection, followed by his ascension and then Pentecost. Now we're in the second half of the church year, the season of Pentecost. And that kind of takes a look at the life of the church and the teachings of the various apostles in their letters uh, to the church. So, for example, this coming Monday, there's going to be two readings set for this fifth Sunday after Pentecost. One of them says we should be following the will of God. And the other one explains what that means. Now, why is that important these days? Because many people think that following the will of God means to follow whatever their feeling is about what they should do about this or that, etc. No, the will of God is clearly earmarked in the scriptures. What is sin? What is not? And there has been no change in the morality of sin from the Old Testament through the New Testament. The change that has occurred is, of course, in the ceremonial laws, which we no longer practice. That's really important. Okay, I think we can go back to the phone lines and talk to... uh... Okay, is this Lawrence? Oh, not yet, hey. Okay, here we go. Lawrence? Hi, you're on the air. Hello? Hello, Pastor Baker? Yes. This is Joyce. I have a question. Um, uh, Good morning, and uh, thank you for doing the Law and Gospel. Uh, What does our uh, church tell us on about belonging to lodges? Well, it depends if they are animal lodges... Uh, particularly where they worship God. And the way you can find that, go to their funerals of their members. And at an animal lodge like the Elks or uh, others, they will be talking about how good this person is and that's why he's going to be saved. There's no necessity in believing in Jesus Christ as the only Savior in an animal lodge. Now, a lot of people join it for business purposes, but then they get caught up in the religious understanding. And that's why uh, pastors who are in agreement with God's word would definitely uh, indicate to people that they cannot be members of such lodges because of their false religious ideas. Okay. Well, thank you. That answers my question. And have a good day, Pastor. Very good. Thank you for calling. Yeah, there's tremendous questions out there, and a lot of times you don't get the opportunity to ask a pastor. Uh, You may, like in a Sunday school, but for example, when I do a Sunday school lesson, I I have a, a set lesson that I'm doing. 
and therefore there's not really an opportunity for questions. So I often start the Sunday school uh, Bible study with saying, "Does anyone have? Does anyone have any questions?" And there's always one or two, and occasionally the question leads to the entire time for the Sunday school taken up in answering that question on the basis of Holy Scripture. But a lot of times, uh, people really want to get to the lesson that we have set up. For example, uh, the past few weeks, I've been doing the Athanasian Creed, and I'll be continuing with that, because that's really a Bible study. Uh, Doing the Athanasian Creed in a sermon really is very difficult, except for the last part of the Athanasian Creed, which is very close to the Apostles and Nicene Creed, talking about his death, his resurrection, etc. But the Athanasian Creed is a doctrinal statement, and law and gospel oftentimes isn't heard when you're trying to explain doctrine. I mean, I can spend a whole sermon showing that Jesus is both God and man. But if I don't apply it to your life as to what difference it makes, it's just a Bible study, and it's not really a sermon. So to listen to a sermon, you should hear, first of all, during the sermon, how you fail to meet God's requirements in getting to heaven. And then the other part of the sermon is how God fulfills his own requirements and transfers that fulfillment over to you, namely with the gift of the forgiveness of sins, as well as the gift of the robe of righteousness, and the many, many promises that are found in both the Old and the New Testaments dealing specifically with God. Really important to make that distinction between a Bible study and a law and gospel sermon. Now, on Wednesdays, we do a Bible study for congregations that may be listening or people at home. There we do intertwine the Bible study with law and gospel. Because I I can't think of a passage in the scripture that doesn't have a law and gospel message. And it's important that people come to understand that so that when they look and read the Bible, they're now looking, okay, where's the law that shows me how I failed God's commandments? And where's the gospel that shows me how God fulfilled the commandments and transfer that over to me? I always end every sermon on a high note of gospel. I don't use words like, therefore, let us, or may we, because that puts you right back under the law. But instead, the pronouncement that, like Jesus said, on the night of the resurrection, the disciples are all downtrodden, they're sad. He comes into the locked room, and the first words he says, peace be with you. And it says there is great joy in that room on the part of the disciples. That's the purpose of a proper sermon, to bring comfort and joy to those who are downtrodden and being attacked by Satan in all kinds of ways in this world. I'm Tom Baker, Pentecost readings 
for Monday. Please be with us. Till then, God bless. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962.